again to Acts chapter 16. We will be reading verses 25 through 40. Your salvation is only the beginning. The title of the message this morning. As you recall, Paul and Silas have been imprisoned. They've been beaten. They've been imprisoned. And as we look once more at this account, we want to find some more truth to help us as we follow our Lord. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour, the same hour of the night, and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let us pray. We ask this morning that you may help us see truth here that might encourage us and instruct us and admonish us, correct us. We seek to find you, Lord, in everywhere in Scripture, and we know that you are there. We know that you have truth and light for us. We know and trust that we are yours. And in this world, at this time, today, we want assurance that your way is true. And indeed it is. 
Help us to be obedient as the world continues to fall away from your light and even refuse to receive it. May we continue in what we find here this morning. We ask this in your holy name and for your glory. Amen. This has always been a very respected story, an account of someone's salvation. It's a beautiful story. It's encouraging. Beginning of a new life in Christ by someone who was once in darkness. We also want to see this morning, as we look at the example of this Philippian jailer, that salvation is only the beginning. It was only the beginning for him, and it is only the beginning for us. And I also want to bear, bring attention to a phrase that most people miss when they read this. Well, at least they miss it for the reason we're going to look at this morning. It's a phrase that's important to understand because it reminds us of our responsibility. It reminds us of our, and here's a word that we're not very comfortable with, it reminds us of our duty. If you remember, this Philippian jailer was a Gentile. The Apostle Paul's ministry, missionary work, his journeys are, are perhaps under full authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, are already moving from sharing the gospel with the lost of Israel to now sharing the gospel with the Gentile nations, with those who are not Hebrew. And since he's been at Philippi, that is what he has focused on. We've seen other examples of this transition that God is bringing about the gospel to the whole world, not just Israel. You may remember an account of another Roman soldier in Acts chapter 10, a centurion by the name of Cornelius, who believed God. He was following the ways of Moses, but received a vision in the night from the Lord, telling him to send for Peter, who will come and share the gospel with him. And you may recall that Peter was in prayer the next day, lunchtime. He was hungry. And he saw this vision of all kinds of food that came down from heaven on a tablecloth. And Peter was commanded to eat, but there was ham and there was shrimp and there was oysters. No, Lord, this is unclean. I, I will not eat it. And God's message to him was, what I have declared clean, you may not think unclean. And he saw this vision three times. And then there was a knock at the door. People came up to the rooftop, Peter, someone here to see you. It was these messengers that Cornelius had sent. Peter went and shared the gospel with Cornelius and led him to the Lord. Again, in Acts chapter 16, we see Lydia, the seller of purple, a very important business lady in the community, came to Christ because of the gospel, the testimony of Paul's work. 
And we see this jailer who is not named. But we can guess a little bit about him. Have you ever been played Sherlock Holmes in the Bible? Sometimes you've seen, I'm sure some of you may have read some of the books about by Arthur Cannon Doyle about Sherlock Holmes, and some of you may have seen some of the depictions of him on television and videos or on programs where this man just kind of looks at people, speaks with them just a little bit, and then accurately pinpoints where they're from by their accent, what kind of people they are by the way they dress and how they behave, and all kinds of clues he gathers from them. Sometimes you can do that in Scripture. We don't have the jailer's name, but we know that he is a jailer at Philippi. Philippi was a Roman city. It began as a Roman colony where military leadership, politicians, and the wealthy went to retire. It was a pleasant place to live. It was a safe place to live. This jailer was probably not some low-ranking soldier assigned to fill a boring job. This was considered to be an important position. We might not think that a jailer would be very important. It's just someone to lock the doors and keep people in check. But this Philippian jailer was probably an experienced veteran who served Rome faithfully and very likely with distinction. Probably survived many military campaigns and likely had won some notable recognition. Therefore, he was given a reward. He was honored with this position. You've survived so many military campaigns. Here's a place that is safe. You can live out your days. You can finish your service to Rome in safety, in a measure of comfort. No more battles. No more war. Just keep the jail. The work he was doing was a reward. So we can also surmise that this jailer, who was accustomed to being ruthless on the battlefield, could do and would do whatever was required without hesitation to any prisoner he kept in jail. He would beat them if it was necessary. He would probably put them to death if it was necessary. So this man was hard and perhaps at times cold. So it gives us an idea that given his salvation, the great drastic dramatic change was even more wonderful. If you remember the Roman soldiers who prepared Jesus for the cross, how cold and hard they enjoyed beating him. They enjoyed the torture. But here we have another Roman jailer who was redeemed, who was saved. Big difference. This jailer at Philippi had never seen anyone like Paul and Silas. Most who are humiliated, and Paul and Silas were publicly humiliated. When the crowds turned on them, they stripped them of their clothes and beat them publicly. Most 
who are humiliated and beaten learn very quickly when to shut up. Most, when they are humiliated and beaten publicly, withdraw and hide, feeling shame. Something different about Paul and Silas. They were praying and they were singing out loud where people could hear the people in the jail could hear. I'm sure this jailer heard much before he retired for the evening before the earthquake. And everything in their songs and in their prayers was a bit of a sermon, a bit of a lesson, a bit of something that would share the gospel with everyone within earshot. You ever notice our hymns? Many of our hymns we sing are drawn from Holy Scripture. They're there to teach us, to open up our hearts to understanding the truth. Please don't think that they're old and out of style and boring because they are not. There is truth. There is light in those hymns. It is kind of a catechesis for us. They don't ask questions, they make proclamation. And as we sing, we proclaim the love of the Lord. We proclaim the truth of Scripture. We proclaim his grace and we proclaim his glory. Paul and Silas were singing and praying. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit was at work in the heart of a trained killer. Then the earthquake happened. The foundations of this prison were shaken. The gates and the doors were broken wide open. The Roman soldier who had won the grace of a safe position where he might live out his days probably thought he had lost his prisoners. Probably thought he had failed. So he drew his sword thinking that his safe assignment was over, and Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord with him, to him and to all who were in his house. What Paul and Silas did was gracious and merciful. Don't kill yourself. The Lord saves. That's essentially, in two phrases, what they did for him. And when we proclaim the gospel, we are proclaiming the same kind of thing. The Lord saves. No matter how sinful, no matter how ungodly you are, the Lord saves. We see here the salvation of an experienced killer. The power of the word of the spirit. We see in this evidence of a changed life. Verse 33. He took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. 
he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him. It's a beautiful story. He was keeping them in chains and shackles at one moment, and the next he is washing their wounds, feeding them and clothing them, and treating them as brothers. The grace of God is deep enough to save the worst sinner. Salvation is only the beginning. There is more for you to learn after your salvation, and there is more for you to do once you are saved. Salvation is only the beginning. There are a lot of people who receive Christ as Lord and as their Savior. I'm not going to say Lord and Savior because there's too much in Christianity today that too many people say that, oh, I've made him my Savior. I've just not made him my Lord. You cannot have one without the other. You are called for a reason and for a purpose. You are not redeemed just to get you out of hell. You are redeemed to give God glory. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God Listen to the words, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. We are bought with a price in order that we would glorify him, body and soul, or body and spirit. Do you glorify him with your body? Do we use our strength for his glory? Do we take care of ourselves for his glory? I don't want to get sidetracked here, but we are redeemed by Christ with the promise of resurrection. Your body will be in a new resurrection. Your body will be renewed, glorified one day. Why not prepare for that even now? Why not give testimony to that now and live as though Christ's glory is in you even now? You see, salvation is only beginning. There's more to learn, so let's learn it. There's more for you to do, so let's do it in the glory of God. How do I glean that from this scripture in Acts 16? I understand what you're talking about, the salvation of this jailer. That's a wonderful story, preacher. That's encouraging. That's helpful. That, that really in, lifts my soul to hear that. I love to hear about people getting saved, especially people as violent as he probably was. 
Where do you get this stuff about more to do? There is a phrase that we see in Acts repeatedly, and I'm convinced it's there on purpose. The Bible does not give us phrases and terms repeatedly again and again and again without some purpose or reason behind it. We miss it because it has very little meaning to us. It's not that important to us anymore. That's why we miss this particular phrase. Luke used it again and again and again because it provided him a powerful economy of words. He knew that people would read it and they would understand what it meant. He didn't have to explain it. He didn't have to open it up. He knew what it meant. He knew the implication would be clear. In Acts 10 and 11, we've already talked about Cornelius once. Let me revisit that, revisit that for a moment. When Peter led him to the Lord, he went back to Jerusalem. And he was criticized by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. You went against the law and crossed the threshold of a Gentile. You broke bread in the home of a Gentile. You should not have done that. And in Acts chapter 11, verse 13, he is explaining this to him. He, Cornelius, told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you the message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. There's the phrase. You and all your household. I want to unpack that in a little bit in just a moment. But it's, see, we see it again in Acts chapter 16 at the conversion of Lydia. In verse 14 of chapter 16, the Bible says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to, the, to what Paul said. And after she was baptized and her household as well, we'll see it again in Acts chapter 18 when we get there. We've even seen it in John's gospel. Jesus had been in Samaria where he had met the Samaritan woman and led her to the Lord. And when he returned to Cana of Galilee, a nobleman came to Jesus and asked for his son to be healed. Please come, my son is about to die. Come and heal him. And Jesus gave him a gentle rebuke about he's tired of so many people looking for signs. And the man pled with him, please just come and heal my son. And the Lord spoke to him, go, your son is healed. He started to return to his home. You'll remember the story. His servants met him halfway the next day as he was journeying back and said, your son is well. He is whole. And the nobleman asked him, when did he get better? And they told him what time. It was about that same hour 
the previous day when Jesus said, your son is well. In John 4, 53, the Bible says, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live and he himself believed and all his household. This idea is used in the, con in, in the teaching of the Old Testament, and it is used in the teaching of the New Testament. Genesis chapter 12, it may not be in those words, but the concept, the idea is there. You remember the words of the call of Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, go out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and you shall, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth, may I say all the households of the earth, I'm convinced that this was the reference that, the, that Peter was referring to at the Sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and, for, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children. promises to you and your household as we saw with Cornelius as we saw with Lydia as we saw with this Philippian jailer does it mean that children born to Christian parents are born saved no I want you to see something a little more responsible in this teaching Will they be saved? If parents are faithful, the likelihood is quite high that they will be saved. If parents are faithful. Mom and Dad, you know we are called to evangelize the nations. The Great Commission. Go into the world baptizing in the, and make disciples. Baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching everything that I have commanded. We are commanded to do that. We're commanded to disciple those whom we convert. If you do not evangelize and disciple your children, you're failing at keeping the Great Commission. There are people who profess the name of Christ or claim to be Christians. They're nominal Christians. They're barely Christians. They might send their children to church when they're children, but when they become children, become teenagers, they let them do whatever they want to do. That's a problem within the church all across the Western world. Our young people are leaving, and we've got to do something to stop it. Parents need to realize that there is a duty to the household. 
household then in ancient times was a cultural understanding that is lost today, especially in the modern West. Cultural influence that was expected and practiced back then, today, people take offense at it. Do you know what they call it today? They call it patriarchy. That's a bad word in modern, te- in modern culture. Patriarchy. But the Bible teaches responsibility and a duty to the household. And I don't want that to be a cold word. I want it to be a very warm word because it speaks about family. The love of parent and child. And back then, even love and respect between master and servant. Belonging. Home. That's why Moses taught in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You, will, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your houses and on your gates. You as a household, as a home, as a family are to live your faith before your children and you parents, mom and dad, are to teach your children about the Lord constantly, always. Let the conversation in your home be filled with the truth that Christ provides. Let every decision you make reflect what is right and wrong and always choose the proper right way. And let your children know why. Let them understand the reasoning behind it because you want to be faithful to the Lord. You want your children to be faithful to the Lord. And there's going to be times when you need to remind your children of their human condition. Most of us have seen, perhaps we've even posted them, most of us have seen little video clips of children, whether on television or on the web. This little toddler, just, just learning how to talk, standing in the kitchen, chocolate or something all over their face. Did you get into that cake? No. Are you sure you didn't have any cake? Nope, no cake. You told me not to get in the cake. It's as cute. You just want, aww. 
But let me remind you, that is evidence that that child is a sinner and that child is a liar. I'm sorry. And what you think is cute at three, you will not think is cute at 16. Right? You need to teach your children of their spiritual condition. You need to teach your children of their need for the cross. You need to evangelize your children and you need to live it before their eyes so that they don't see hypocrisy in your life. And if there is ever any error in your life or ever any mistake or ever any hypocrisy that is revealed in your life, and mom and dad, you and I know that it will happen, you need to be humble enough to sometimes, when they've seen it, go to them and ask forgiveness. Let them see a brokenness in you in your household that is willing to humble yourself before the Lord, even before them, say, let's go to the cross. Let's find forgiveness and grace once more. And let's continue on with the Lord Jesus. Most Christians, and I say most Christians, most Americans, excuse me, most Americans claim to be Christians. You look at all the surveys, and I think it's about 60%. It's dwindling. It's getting lower every year. But most of those numbers that answer surveys as Christian are nominal Christians. That means they only show up for Christmas and Easter and perhaps a wedding every now and then or a funeral every now and then. That's the only time they will darken the door of a church. They don't understand. Those are the ones that are going to be swayed by the culture around us. They're the ones that are, not going, they're, they're going to be convinced that Christianity has no bearing, that the Word of God has no more importance. Parents, if you are a Christian, your primary responsibility is the evangelism and the teaching, the discipleship of your children. A lot of Christians will send them their parents, the parents will send their children to church thinking the church is supposed to take care of it. The church is here to help you and to aid you and to guide you. But it's your responsibility. And we want to help you. We want to guide you. We want to assist you. But one hour a week, is not going to give us enough time to change your children. You're with them every day, every night. Salvation is only the beginning. There's more for us to learn. There's more for us to do. And more for us to teach your children, your household. In ancient times, households, homes, and families were led by the father and mother. The culture then respected that. That's why Luke could use it when he talked about households. People knew what they were talking about. That household was a unit that was respected. It, was, it had a reverence. If you belong to a family, 
Young people, back then, if you belonged to a family, you weren't allowed to even court until your mom and dad arranged it for you. You were not allowed to marry until your mom and dad arranged it for you. Today, you can send your kids off to college, and they may come home for Christmas with somebody you never met before, and they're already sleeping with them. If a young man wants to date a young lady, particularly a Christian young man wants to date a Christian young lady, he needs to go to the parents of her and ask permission. You think that's archaic? If he will not respect the family, he will not respect her. In ancient times, households were revered. They were respected. We don't see that anymore. So when the gospel changed the hearts and minds of men, when the gospel changed the hearts and minds of mothers, when the gospel changed the hearts and minds of fathers, then everyone in their homes quickly identified with that conversion because I belong there. That's my family. That's my home. This is the way my father believes. This is the way I will now be walking. This is the way my mother believes. This is the way now I will be walking. This is the way my husband believes. This is the way my wife believes. This is the way I will now be walking because this is our home. This is our way. This is our path to follow the Lord Jesus. We've become too individual in this world. We should not allow our children or give them permission to, you believe what you want to believe. No. That's handing them over to Satan. Satan has so thoroughly attacked the concept of family that it's barely recognizable anymore. If salvation has come to you, then it is your responsibility to be sure to know that your children know and follow Jesus. And parents, churches rarely teach catechism anymore. Churches most often teach their children Bible stories. If the church is good, they will certainly include the gospel in those Bible stories, and that's always good. I'm not saying any disrespect against that, but we no longer, very rarely will a, will a church teach catechism to children in Sunday school. It needs to be brought back. Parents need to make sure their children are getting that in the home and not just one hour every Sunday morning. Because it's not just Bible knowledge. It's principles of how to live for God. It's not just Bible knowledge. I'm going to say a word that a lot of people don't like. It's doctrine. And your children, your young people, are intelligent enough to grasp some of the concepts of the gospel of grace and about God. Teach it to them. Don't you know that your children are already being catechized in the world daily? 
They're learning the ways of the world. They're, they're learning the ways of Satan every single day. Listen to the music they're Pay attention to the music they're listening to. Pay attention to the videos they're watching. They are being catechized every day, whether you realize it or not. One hour a week at church on Sunday is not enough. The church is here to help you, to guide you, to assist you. The church is not here, mom and dad, to take your place as parent in your home. Your children need to see you live the gospel. The children need to hear you talk about it. The Bible says the promise is to you and to your children. It is to you and to your household. It is a covenant promise that does expect a measure of respect and responsibility to believe it. Because we all have to, no one's born saved. We have to believe it. We need to receive it by faith. What do you do with your children? What about parents who are unequally yoked? What about parents who might be widowed or divorced? I would direct you very quickly to 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul teaches that one believing parent sanctifies their children to God. It means they are responsible for teaching their children about the Lord. Your children have a right the covenant promise that God has given us through the grace of the gospel. We need to be teaching it to them. There is more for you to do. There is more for you to learn. Salvation is only the beginning. We've seen the salvation of a jailer, a Roman soldier, a warrior. His whole family changed Because of his salvation. May it be so for you as well. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word and its truth and its power. May it correct us. May it help us and encourage us as your children. We long to be faithful to you, Lord. We desire it. Help us to repent if we have been weak. Forgive us if we have failed. Hold us accountable to your word and truth as we live it out before the eyes of our own family. Help our children to be faithful to you by being faithful to mom and dad and help our parents, our mothers and fathers, to be faithful to you by living the gospel and teaching it to their children daily. It is for his glory and our good we pray these things. Amen.